Hey folks, we have some exciting news for you all. We have just launched a brand new company founded on the tenets of our love as a business strategy philosophy, the same philosophy that you've grown to know and love. This new venture is called Culture Plus. Culture Plus is a culture as a service company that provides training experiences, consulting services, and digital tools to help companies achieve high performing and high reliability cultures and teams. To learn more, visit culture-plus.com. That's culture-plus.com. And now let's get to the show. Today's guest is Gina Cox, who is an organizational psychologist and coach. And she gives us almost 40 minutes plus of nonstop pure wisdom in this episode. She paints an incredibly clear and insightful picture of what leadership, inclusion, and organizational culture looks like in workplaces today. And her stories and examples and insights are going to give you a lot to think about. So I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Love is a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I am joined today by my co-host and co-author, Chris Petrie. Hey, Chris, how's it going today? Hello, Jeff. Chris, we like to dive into different elements of business and strategy on this show, and we love to invite guests that'll help test our theory of love. Um, so today's guest is an organizational psychologist, an executive coach, a speaker, a soon-to-be author with a book coming out this year, and someone who knows a thing or two about cultures in organizations. So with 30-plus years in business, 20-plus years in advising and coaching, and even 10-plus years in measuring employee experiences, I think we have a lot to learn from our guests today. Please welcome Gina Cox. Gina, welcome to the show. So much fun to be here and, you know, great to meet you, Jeff and Chris, and to talk about the things that I love to talk about nonstop, always happy to talk about any of this stuff. <laughs> and that's why you're here and to listen. <laughs> we'll just mute ourselves. You have the next 30 yeah. minutes. You have yeah. the floor. Uh, before we go, a little bit of an icebreaker. I'll make Chris go first, Gina, so you can prepare yourself for the same question. Chris, what is... Uh, your 2022 New Year's resolution? I don't make resolutions, um, <laughs> so I don't have any. Um, but I guess to continue with, you know, what I've been doing in 2021 and 2020, which is to survive this pandemic. <laughs> Fair enough. Gina, same question. What is or do you have a 2022 New Year's resolution? I don't have a resolution, but I have a word. Someone asked me last year at the end of the year, what is your going to be your word for 2022? And I realized I had one and my word is ease. Ease as opposed to easy. It's not the same thing. But by mm -hmm. ease, what I mean is this is the year where I'm really going to focus on just sort of being Gina in, in her fullness, <laughs> in her authentic fullness. Nice. Um, and just focusing on that, just then that happens sort of more naturally. Uh, I tend to be fairly uptight person. And, you know, after spending all these years in corporate America, I, I, I kind of came to the epiphany that I, 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 I present myself in this sort of scripted fashion. I speak in a certain way, and this is the only way I know how to speak, but I'm just saying it's sort of like sometimes I'm just wanting to breathe out more and savor and savor 
So savor and ease, that, that's my resolution. I love that so nice. much. And what a way to start coming on our show. Mm -hmm. We're going to be all of our authentic selves. We're going to practice yes. that resolution right now together. Yes. Um, but I guess where I always want to begin, Gina, for any guest is I, I really want to hear your story. And obviously it doesn't have to be your whole your entire life story end to end, but really what brought you here, your, where, where your passions lie and where those come from is what I'm most interested in. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my passion is that every employee should just have the best experience when they show up for work, whatever that means, wherever it is, what, regardless of what they're doing. That's the simple idea. But how I got there is sort of a winding tale. I won't take a long time to tell it, but you know, I discovered psychology when I was a teenager, but I only knew about clinical. And my dad had given me a book and I devoured it. But when I went to undergraduate college, I met this woman who came from the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. She was a social psychologist. I was like, what? What is, what is that? And she, she was the one that showed me all the disciplines within psychology. And she said, because I had done some work as a journalist and I loved business, she said, you know, you might look at industrial and organizational psychology. I was like, oh my God, that's a long name and who the heck knows what that is. And, but I fell in love with it because it was the juxtaposition of like the human and then the business stuff that I also was intrigued by. And when I had the opportunity to decide MBA, PhD, it was a, it was definitely, a, 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 there wasn't really a competition. It was going to be the PhD because I wanted to really delve into human behavior. So, you know, unfortunately, though, in all of the years since then, since the PhD, um, 30 something years, um, a long time, we haven't really made a lot of progress on some of the things that I care about, which is really about, again, how can every individual employee feel like they are thriving, like this is the place they want to be, they come in, it's not a burden, it's something that they do, they get paid for it, but they enjoy their colleagues, uh, they feel fulfilled and purposeful, you know, I think we can all get there, but organizations have to really be themselves purposeful in helping everybody get to that nirvana, if you would. Yeah, I love that. And I'm going to, I'm going to dig a little deeper. I want, I want to hear like, can you be specific on what you're seeing? Like what, what is over the last 30 plus years is happening? What is the problem here? So frankly, the problem, yeah. the core issue, I think, is that we haven't really set expectations for employees to let them know that they, you know, they're important and they have a, they should have a point of view and they should be able to have this great experience that I'm describing. So this expectation that the workplace could be a place where you have those good feelings, it hasn't really been established as a norm. The norm has more been you come in, you do the job and you get paid. And if you're lucky, if you're one of those lucky few, for whatever reason, you might have that fulfillment. You might get to fully thrive. On the other side of that though, is we haven't set the expectations that managers, who I call designated hitters, by the way, that managers would be responsible for creating that kind of environment. We sort of let that part of it been a sort of a laissez-faire approach where you might get it depending on, you know, if you get manager A, a you might get it. Manager B, not so much. Manager C, not at all. And it's okay. We, we sort of say, you know, managers vary. Humans vary. So managers vary. And, you know, some managers have strengths and some aren't as strong. 
But I challenge that because I say, if you're going to have the nerve to take a human and put them in charge of other humans, then it is required that all managers, that each manager be held accountable for at least a minimal effort to manage all of those employees in a certain way, to manage the environment in a certain way. So when I think about the manager and the employee relationship, that partnership, I don't make a lot of room for, you know, for, um, I don't make a lot of excuses for either party. For managers, I say there's some certain things that leaders at the top of the house should expect from every single manager. And then for employees, I say, if it's the pandemic that has caused you to have this epiphany that some people call the great resignation, yay, I think that's great. Because in fact, you shouldn't have to feel less than in order to get a paycheck. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's awesome. Um, this has been I, one you're like talking to, you know, all of my passions as well as you're, you're sharing. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to know in your um, career and your experience, like what, what are some of the issues or challenges that you see between manager and employee or leader and employee, mm. um, like the specifics, like get into the nitty gritty, tell stories if yes. you have to. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Mm. So again, a lot of this has to do with the definition of what we think managers and leaders should be all about in organizations. And while many managers have MBAs uh, and while many managers do various kinds of training, I do believe that there is insufficient focus on the interpersonal aspects of the manager relationship with those that they lead. So the things that I see tend to fall into that bucket because managers tend to disproportionately focus on getting the tasks done. And everybody knows they're going to make sure you get the tasks done. But what if there's a situation where um, Gina has a situation where she needs to take a, a few extra days off from work that were unplanned. She couldn't have predicted it. She needs this to take care of her daughter who has developed some sort of a, a you know, some hopefully short-term problem. And she has to take that child to the doctor or whatever, whatever the specifics are. Traditionally, not only do managers sort of frown upon that, but even coworkers, colleagues will frown, frown upon that because the whole system is sort of set up to say, Gina ought to be there. If Gina, G, you know, her, her performance or her my judgment about her as a, an employee hinges upon her sort of being there uh, regardless of what's going on in the rest of her life. And so, you know, one of the things that we're seeing in the pandemic is that more employees are saying, you know, frankly, I, I can't do those things, even if I wanted to, because either the school is closed. I'm I'm now the, the in addition to doing this job, I'm a teacher. I'm a school teacher for my child. I'm a caretaker. I'm doing taking care of the medical aspects of their care. I'm cooking the meals. I'm doing everything. I can't do it. And for the first time, I think managers are starting to realize that there's a whole person that shows up to do this job. You know, if I if I think about my own personal experiences, I once worked in a company where, and this was a great company, by the way, relative to some others, but there was this one executive who used to always say, I love it when I look out into the parking lot and I see it full at seven o'clock. That was his, he was in financial services. He thought it was just a great idea that people were just sort of working their fingers to the bone. I had to leave the office every day by five. I had to do that because child click care closed at six and I needed to have enough time to maneuver through the traffic, get there before that six o'clock hour, not only because I didn't want to pay the late fee and not, you know, I wanted to see my daughter, 
but also because I knew that the staff, they wanted to go home and take care of their personal obligations as well. So every day I'm all stressed about, oh my gosh, you know, I know I'm, I'm like waiting to the very last second before I close my office door. I'm sort of sneaking through the hallways quietly. I don't really want to be noticed. Um, and I'm wondering long-term, you know, is it likely that this is gonna have a negative impact on my career mobility versus the other person who stays till seven o'clock every day and develops the relationships that sometimes happen at the end of the day when people are starting to wind down and standing around and just shooting the breeze and so on. So that's an example that I, I, I always take with me because there's so many lessons to be had from a scenario like that where that senior leader has set a tone for the organization. In, in fact, probably doesn't realize the extent to which those words I love seeing in a parking lot at uh, full at seven are, are having that trickle down effect that are defining a culture that is not sustainable. And unfortunately, particularly detrimental to those employees, you know, who are, who are parents and caretakers and have other obligations that they must satisfy, but they still want to do a really good job. Another aspect, though, that uh, of the manager employee relationship where I see a lot of um, you know, there's the rub, there's this friction, has to do with really um, and truly understanding the impact that they have on the other person. I once went to um, a business meeting uh, with someone who was a, a, the, a senior executive in an organization where I worked, and we were sitting at breakfast in the lobby of a hotel, and it so happened that I had met that person's family like about a year before at some kind of social event. So making small talk, I said, you know, you have a wonderful, a beautiful family. And I, I said something more specific. And this person sort of, they recoiled. I mean, I could see them recoil and they went, how do you know my family? And I, in the moment, in, instantly I thought, oh, Okay, so he, this person feels a little bit threatened by the fact that I said something about their family. So that must mean that they feel somewhat threatened by me. And they're certainly not thinking of me as a peer. And, you know, why do they, why are they, why are they even asking me this question? The bottom line was from that moment on, I never had the same relationship with that person, never trusted that they would have my back because I felt other. I felt like so distant from that person in that moment. Yet that person was an executive who could have a significant impact on my career destiny. I think the, what, I, what I always feel when I tell that story is that there were so many things that could have been different, but that was truly one of those um, situations where I'm not even sure the individual was aware uh, of how they reacted, but what it also meant was that I just judged that was not an effective leader. In that moment, I decided this person is not an effective leader because he or she doesn't hasn't yet quite mastered this ability to just interact with anybody in their organization and just sort of relax and have some ease and create mm -hmm. some ease uh, <laughs> for that person. <laughs> I love that. I, I I love those examples you're bringing because. Um, you know, we, we, we work in this space a lot ourselves mm -hmm. and the people we work with, people we talk to, and it is a constant battle. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it really comes down to what you just said. Self-awareness mm -hmm. is probably the largest hurdle um, that, that we face in general. Once you realize that you have a problem, a lot of, a lot of times it's much easier to then go down a path yes. of understanding the problem and committing to change yes. and things like that, which takes time, which doesn't make you perfect. 
but it's it's often leaders who have gotten to a certain place over 20 30 year careers um, that don't know any other way or don't know that what they're doing you know has that type of impact um, I'm wondering in your in your work how do you break through like how do when you face this um, I'll just say extreme or severe lack of self-awareness in the people in the, in the people you coach and the organizations that have these present, which I'm, I'm going to assume you deal with. Um, <laughs> what, where do you start? Yeah. And, and, and by the way, it's not coincidental that the two stories I shared are stories about senior leaders, because one of the things that I, is very, very clear to me is that exactly what you describe is, is part of the challenge. You can't expect managers to behave one way if the senior leaders don't set the tone and model the way and make it clear that these, this is a part of effective leadership. But so for I've been a, an organizational consultant for many years, and as you know, you know I'm, I'm often consulting to the C-suite when we're, frankly, for all of the work that I do, it's always about enhancing and changing something uh, in an organization. And that means that you've got to get the C-suite involved. There's often data involved, and they want to they wanna hear the story first before the rest of the organization hears it, ostensibly because they want to be the ones that drive that change in the organization. But another thing that I have noticed throughout my career is that many leaders will sometimes focus so much on the data, disproportionately on the data, that it then becomes a hindrance to actually taking action. You know, you analyze, you overanalyze, you talk about this, you focus on that, you ask about all the what ifs scenarios that you can imagine, but what, what gets in the way is actually doing something. So interestingly, since George Floyd was killed, one of the things that has changed and that has begotten a little bit easier for me in the job that I do is that, that those very stories that you asked that I share, I never used to share stories as part, of, I hardly ever shared stories as part of the consulting work because leaders would insist we want data-driven strategies, but they would sort of conflate these ideas. They could not understand, they didn't realize that in tr to truly understand what is happening with that data point that you have averaged and averaged to the nth degree. <laughs> and average is useful for understanding a big pattern, but it doesn't really guide you to, to the actions that need to be customized you know, in various parts of your business, at various levels and so on. But stories do. So I have become a much more effective storyteller. I've gotten more room to tell stories. Leaders are listening to stories more often. And I tell you that when, when um, the, the thing that is, has, that is clearly the most effective is when you say, okay, here, here are the data. You've got 10,000 people over here in Japan thinking this way, and you've got another 5,000 over here in Germany who said this other thing. And now let me tell you what their experiences are like on a day-to-day -day basis that have led to these average scores. And for now, let's put away the data and let's talk about, well, what does that mean? In order for these folk over here in Germany to be telling you that X, Y, and Z is happening, it must mean what, what is likely to, uh, to have preceded that in order for them to be feeling this way. And as we have those kinds of conversations, the other thing I say is make sure you read the comments, by the way, in these data, don't just read the quantitative data. Um, but I can tell you the story. What it means is that, or what we're seeing is that we've got managers over here doing this thing or not doing this other thing or disproportionately doing this other thing. And so what I try to do to get uh, executives to understand is I try to tell them more stories and not, um, and I don't only rely on that. The other thing that is really important for leaders 
is I try to guide them to talk to their employees in, a, in, in new and different ways if they're not already doing that. So I, I certainly think that many executives suffer from the challenge of, you know, of sifted data. Ron Carucci talks a lot about sifted data. This whole notion that you get to a certain level of an organization, people stop telling you what you need to hear. They tell you what they want you to hear. And if that is true, that means that you've constantly, every day, got to set up some alternative ways of getting that piece of information that your direct reports might not be telling you. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of executives don't get all of the information that they need to get, and they don't know that they haven't gotten all of that information. So talking to employees in new and different ways means, uh, or it means adding to your portfolio, the ways that you relate to employees to look for more opportunities to hear directly from people at different levels in the organization. It means that if you're an organization where sales is the dominant function because that's the nature of the business, or if engineering or technologists are the ones that run the show, make sure you're also talking to the people who are at the opposite end of the spectrum of power from those who are in the forefront, right? Mm. Because the folk that run the organization from an intellectual perspective, we all have our vested interests. We all have our, you know, our little silos, our little fiefdoms, our little things we want to influence. We all do, right? And I'm not saying people are doing this with ill intent. It's just the nature of humans and business. So if you talk to people who are in customer service, and if you talk to more customers, and if you talk to more whatever the case might be, is when you really find out what's going on. Here's an example of this that uh, really resonated with me over the, um, over the pandemic. I uh, let's see, I volunteered, this is early on, and I volunteered to be um, a, a participant in a research study, um, something relating to the, you know, to the vaccines. This is early days. And uh, I was contacted by someone from the university that was actually collecting the, the subjects, you know, so that I could get all the details. And I had this conversation with this lady who I remember was from Trinidad. I'm from Barbados, and she was from Trinidad. So at the very beginning of the of the conversation, we then we, we started to talk in the way that Trinidadians talk because Trinidadians they talk like everything they're saying is a poem. Nobody knows why. I love it. <laughs> so I was teasing her about that, and we were having a good time. We talked. I think we talked for thirty minutes. I, we took care. She took care of business. But what I realized in that conversation was that that lady who was whatever her job was, she needed social interaction, she needed contact, she needed something to let her feel like she was still alive as and not just talking to people on a telephone one after the other. And, for, and I was the one, you know, that for whatever reason, she got that, she got that for me that day. But organizations don't necessarily, as they're, as they're scheduling the work of customer service professionals, think about the experience of that customer service representative, what does he or she need so that he or she can feel, the, the, can thrive, right? It might not have anything to do with pay, might not have anything to do with title, might not have anything to do with the equipment. In that case, it had all to do with the with her social support that she, that she had lost. Maybe she worked in a call center before. Um, so, um, so one of the things that I think is really important is to, is to think about where you're getting your information from that is leading you to make the judgments and the decisions that you make about how you manage talent, how you optimize talent. Uh, another example, I once, um, I was new to an organization and I um, flew to Milwaukee, Wisconsin because we were gonna have a client meeting the, the following day. 
And, and, you know, consultants like to have dinners. We have these dinners for two reasons. One, we're spending the company's money and, and eating delicious food and, and, and we're hanging out with one another. Uh, and then we do some strategizing for the meeting the next day, right? That's supposed to be the focus. But honestly, we, we do all of that, but we, we enjoy this as a social opportunity. So I was new. And I came to my hotel room about six and I freshened up and I got ready because I knew that we were going, we were going to be going out for dinner that day. But I never heard from anyone. So I started texting and emailing and I'm still not. So around nine o'clock after I had already taken my clothes off, ordered some, um, ordered in something and eaten it in the hotel room, I got um, a text out of the blue that says, we are at restaurant XYZ. Would you care to join us? Right. So what do you do? I decided, you know, I'm new. Uh, I, I still want to know what's going on. So I hop in a cab. This was in the cab days. And I went to the restaurant. And when I got there, my colleagues were there. The client and the client's husband were there. It was the weirdest thing. So, you know, you're kind of trying to figure out what was going on. Ultimately, um, what it turned out was that you know, that was, they were, they were together because they were accustomed to being together. I was the new person. They really weren't focused on me. I was coming from a different city. They were too, but, um, you know, they had worked together before. And I immediately understood there was no norm in this organization for collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. There, there was nothing in, they, they didn't think about me because there was no expectation that they would think about me. I'm a functionary. I was there to be the expert tomorrow in the meeting, but meanwhile, <laughs> We'll have fun. Why I'm telling that story is that I bet that I know that the people who ran this very large organization of which I was a part at the time have not have very little clarity about the experiences of their employees, especially those who are working in situations where they're depending upon other colleagues to provide that nurturing and support. So it's an example of why leaders can't assume anything. They can't think they know. And that only somebody who had walked in those shoes could, could ever tell a leader, let me tell you what happens when I'm on the road. And let me tell you how it feels to be on the road. And let me tell you that the negative feelings come more from my colleagues than from my client or what, you know. So uh, leaders have got to just always look for ways to get information in places they might not typically look. Mm. Chris, what's that thing you say about um, like people data versus normal data? Oh, um, many times when you have, when you're, as you were mentioning the results of surveys and whatnot, you have this people information. And many times you want to take a scientific lens and, you know, rule out the outliers and sort of, you know, look mm -hmm. at the mean and average and all these things. But, you know, it only takes one person to build a civil case. <laughs> it just takes one, <laughs> right? It only takes one, one story and one experience to create change, right? You can look at that positively or negatively. Um, mm -hmm. But many leaders, when they get data, as you, you know, mentioned, they start to question and interrogate it as if it's not attached to a human or mm -hmm. humans, right? And they can find ways to rule things out, to question it, to second guess it. Mm -hmm. And as you said, overanalyze it and get paralyzed in certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, but that's something that we try and help, you know, when we are working with clients, help them understand, like, I know it's very easy because it's uncomfortable to get receive this data and see that there are th areas of improvement and opportunities. You know, some people might look at them as challenges or problems or, you know, elephants in the room. But no matter what your perspective is, Right. It's it's easier as a leader to rule certain things away because the 
I guess the process is difficult because yes. there isn't a science, you know, or a manual that I can give you and say, here's how you make your culture more inclusive. If you just follow the, these three steps, you know, <laughs> it'll magically change. As you mentioned, everybody's unique. Yes. Everybody has a different experience and everybody experiences, you know, conversations and interactions differently based on history, based on perspective, based on upbringing, based on all of these factors mm -hmm. that are a confluence inside of the workspace. Yes. And it's really hard for some leaders who have been trained to look at things one way and their way has been successful for them. Yes. So now challenge that and say, like, stop <laughs> what mm -hmm. you've been doing has served you very well. So this is not a, a knock against that. But now we have to now look at new tools or bring in new tools and bring in you know, new ways of looking at the same problem, despite, you know, the success that you may have seen in just that one way. Absolutely. And actually, Chris, what that reminds me of is that, you know, again, in those situations where I work, have worked closely with leaders uh, on using data to drive um, insights, there's that... Um, I noticed over the years that very little would be different from time one to time two in terms of whether the leaders had used the insights from the previous pieces of data to drive significant change that would then result in something meaningful. Rather, they were obsessed with trends, uh, this whole notion of the, you know, the trend from year to year. And, and it was more in an academic sense in a way. We want scores to go up. Everybody wants scores to go up. You know, great. But it wasn't to say, well, you know what? Folks told us a year ago that um, they were dissatisfied about something over here. And then did we do something about that? Or no, it's more like, let's just look for this aggregated improvement at the enterprise level so we can say that there's an improvement. But that is contradictory to the employee experience because my experience yes. is always local. Yes. Exactly. And that's, that's honestly been one of the biggest ahas that we've given to um, everyone that we meet is that in most situations, when you get survey results, you look at the 80%, right? You're like, look, we're doing 80% of people love it here. But when you talk about inclusive cultures and D&I, what's happening with that 20%? <laughs> like, well, like, that's who we should be like, we want to retain the 80% where they are, but the 20% is like, that's, that's where we need to be looking into. And are there trends and patterns in that 20% that mm -hmm. are reflective of marginalization, of exclusion, of, you know, problems that might be flying under the radar simply because it's not the experience of the dominant group, right? Right. Um, right. And, and, you know, helping break that down in a way that doesn't feel accusatory is often the challenge that I'm pretty sure you might face, <laughs> right? Um, or that mm -hmm. we face sometimes is like, it's, it's no it's no one's fault per se unless there is a clear bad actor here but <laughs> it's the aggregate like as a leadership team we all have to come together and just own this and once you own it you can find a solution mm -hmm. right you know mm -hmm. and i think that that's sometimes the biggest one of the biggest commitment gaps that we see you know in sort of bringing people along that journey especially if they just inherently feel like they haven't done anything wrong or things are not broken because of right. how they have experienced the organization mm -hmm. yeah right. And I, and I don't know what you're seeing, um, but you know, the whole idea of improvement, the concept of improvement, I, there's a new baseline. There are two new baselines. There's a new baseline because of COVID. Uh, maybe there are even three. There's a new baseline because of COVID. There's a new baseline because of the change in the work environments and so on. And there's also the, Mar the May 20th baseline. 
uh, where yeah. in each of these were these were disruptions to any kind of straight line that you might have had. And we have to really study to understand, well, what is the bottom, you know, and where and what mm -hmm. is when we talk about the trends and so on, we have to be really careful. And you know, we have to also be careful about comparing our, our organization to other organizations, because for all of these three things, the environment is so complex that yeah. uh, something that worked for another might not. And so right now I'm just telling leaders, focus on you, meaning your your organization yeah, uh, and 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 really understand what's happening in it and yeah. think about what are the things that you can do for this group of humans who are in this unique situation and do those things and spend less time worrying about, you know, who else is doing what and how they're doing it because it's just too complicated and you got to experiment too. Yeah. Sometimes we, we go even more narrow. We say literally think about you first, like you as you, a leader yourself, mm -hmm. then think about your team before mm -hmm. you even think about your organization. Yes. Because I think that's where people are just missing a complete part of the picture where you're over here digging through data and survey results and, and custom, you know, employee satisfaction. And you haven't even turned the mirror on yourself yet to kind of look at what about the few people who report to me? What about what I'm doing in this space? You're so worried about fixing trends and other things, other places that there's all this space right around you that you have not yet even addressed. Mm -hmm. And then, yes. and then, and you go and try to fix that problem with that mindset and you create bigger problems because yes. you come up with solutions and processes and tools and changes that are built off of a mindset that already doesn't see the problem, that already doesn't understand mm -hmm. what needs to be done. Right. So when you do the work on yourself, then you go, oh, you know what? I've been part of this and oh, there's more that I can do from my position. And then when you go address those problems, you're able to empathize and see that 20% and see people differently. And then those solutions you come up with have that built in and are more inclusive naturally and more holistic. I love this because clearly, you know, we are we are in sync on this for sure. Mm -hmm. That is exactly the way that I think about it. It's why I keep talking about the top of the organization and and why sometimes I feel like I'm saying this thing over and over and over and wonder um, if I should stop saying that, but you know, but I don't because it's it's 100% clear to me, you know, from years of doing this that that's absolutely true, and that it does have that personal component, um, and that your person that personal component that 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 end of one human who's at the top component really. Um, sometimes I think senior executives not only underestimate the impact that they have on others, but they underanalyze themselves, if you would. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's the introspection and the quietness that is necessary before you get to really tackle these big challenges that have a human angle to them. <laughs> I can't, can't tell you how many, <laughs> sorry, Chris, I, I, just, I can't tell you how many times we've gone to a company who definitely needs this. They even recognize it. They call us in. And then the CEO, whoever on top, is just like, all right, we'll get to work and let me know, you know, what oh, the I results know. are. And let me, yeah. we're like, no, 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 no. We're like, yeah. we're, we're, we're starting with you. <laughs> and, it's, 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 and we close the door and they're like, wait, what? Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. No, like, it's yeah. very, very funny. But, you yeah. know, um, in, in defense of, not defense, but in, in, in sympathy or empathy with those leaders, that is another cultural norm is that number one, they should, they should be perfect. They should acknowledge no vulnerability. They should have all the answers. 
you know, they should keep themselves above the fray. All of those are norms that we have established. At the University of, um, at Rice University in Houston, at the Door Institute, they're doing some great work. I think the book that came out in 2021, uh, might've been 2020, is called Leadership Reckoning. And, and in that book, um, Thomas Kolditz is basically saying, we have got to re-examine the, the way that we have, the way that we teach leadership in our MBA programs in particular, especially at the top schools, <laughs> you know who they are. Um, because what, what, he, what he's saying is that there is a lot of focus on leadership and we, we, we talk about leadership, but there's less focus on leader, uh, on being a leader. What does a leader do? And so you talk, it, 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 there, he sees that there's just this great opportunity to re-examine and that he thinks every leader should have, every person coming out of the NBA, for example, should have a coach. That, that coaching should be, coaching of that person should be part of their preparation to be a leader as opposed to someone who understands leadership because it, the component of looking at yourself and having that personal accountability will, is a differentiator. Uh, so it's a very interesting book to read and, um, and it, it, uh, I like it because it aligns with my ideas, right? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I do think it's very important because it speaks to this notion that as a society, we have created some behaviors and leadership that are no longer servicing us and we can see it now and we have an opportunity to do something different. Yep wholeheartedly agree um so i have i've read a lot of your articles on hbr um and one in particular and in one you talk about the inefficacy of leadership training especially when it comes to inclusive building inclusive cultures and so um not trying to make you repeat everything that you put in that article but i know that a lot of organizations still question the value um, and the ROI on these types of trainings um, and you being in your role and seeing all that you've seen, I'm curious to understand if you've sort of, if you can share what you have seen to be more effective inside of that space and what you would recommend that our listeners um, consider um, if they are about to invest or want to invest or are still unsure about investing into, into that area. So training is important. Um, I, I don't mean to underplay the importance of training, but mm. but but certainly uh, it needs to. It can only be effective within a broader framework that is defined by the top of the house. Truly understanding what the issues are that are at stake, and then saying, "Okay, this is our north star. This is what we're heading for. This is our strategic intention." And then within that now, here, we can create this training to support that strategic intention. So what I don't like is training that sort of one-off. Oh, we did, some, we did some implicit bias training last week, or we're going to do some, you know, like if it, it, <laughs> it, everything has to have a purpose. So implicit bias training has a purpose. It's not, it's not um, valueless. It is valuable, but within a broader context, because there are these other things. So training that makes a difference has to be very clearly targeted as to what is the intended outcome. So there's obviously training that has to do with just even communicating the senior team's strategic intention for whatever we're talking about. Let's call it diversity and inclusion. If you don't have that, well, what's the, what's the training for? Not only will you not know what kind of training to create, how to, de how to define it, who is going to get the training, and how to measure success on that training, but the participants in that training are going to go, what? Why am I doing this? I don't know. I don't get it. Why? What, what for? And they're not going to do anything with it. So you've got to have that North Star as a starting point. 
But so they're straining about what are we up to? They're straining for the leaders to really understand the behaviors that you now want them to adopt or the new things that they have to start doing and saying, right? And they, as you say, you've got to start at the top of the organization. So it is it is not useful to say, well, let's just do let's do training that starts at the bottom of the house or let you know, and, and let's it maybe it will cascade up because there is no such thing as cascading up because gravity doesn't work that way and leader behavior yeah. somehow does not. So so you've got to get those leaders, you know, trained and, and having a shared point of view and then being able to know what you want them to do. But the key people that really make the difference in this kind of work are managers. It's local. It's a local experience. So the individual managers, um, and I, I, by the way, I am kind of cynical. I assume that at least 50% of whomever I meet in organizations don't agree with any of this. I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I, I don't think everybody agrees that any of this stuff matters, should matter, should be on, a, should be a conversation or anything. So I assume only 50%. Yeah. And, and so, so if I assume that only 50% even care about this, I, that means that I know that somebody has to make this something that is, is, is our cultural norm. I don't want to use the word requirement. It's a cultural norm that this is how we treat humans. This is how we do certain things. This is how managers behave. Here are the behaviors that we expect a manager to exhibit. So there's training about, you know, sort of even really understanding what are the expectations for managers. But here's the other thing. Um, there's also a disproportionate focus on these interpersonal, implicit bias kinds of things in the training curricula. But it's really the systemic bias that I'm mostly interested in. I'm mostly interested in the fact that any individual manager has discretion to make all kinds of decisions. So how have the how have the processes been established for how you identify your, your talent pool, how you select from your talent pool, how you promote within the talent pool, how pay and compensation decisions are made and who gets the fancy bonuses and the stock options and who doesn't. And all of the, the talent management decisions that have tra traditionally for decades, the talent management decisions that have been in place have, have often been a part of the problem if we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if that is the case, I'm interested in training managers, I'm interested in training HR and leadership and development people to more effectively design those systems. And then I'm interested in training managers to be more effective users of them so that they don't have either intentional or unintentional uh, bias uh, in the decisions um, that they make. So the truth is, in the end, <clears throat> uh, if you if you went by what I just said, what you see is that this is very complex, and that I don't I, I don't I'm not saying you shouldn't do one-off things or you shouldn't say within this part of our business we have a unique problem we're going to tackle that head-on we're not going to wait to have the whole system fixed. I'm not suggesting you have to get the whole system fixed. I do I do think you have to have the north star defined and meaning that the top of the house has to be in on this and pushing it from the very top. And then I think you have to assume that there are some systemic changes that might have to be made and you have to be prepared to make them. And I always say to senior leaders, you know, it might mean that there could be some people in your organization that shouldn't stay. Maybe there should be, maybe there's some people reporting that have a lot of power that might not be able to make this change. And there might be some people who shouldn't be managing humans, regardless of what those humans look like. So this notion that anybody could be a manager is one of the ones I try to tackle. Um, and there are some people who might be glad to step away from management, but even if, they're, if they don't want to, 
to me, the holy grail of all of this is what is what what is that local experience? What are those managers like? And and have they been trained or are they trainable and willing to be, to change so that they can manage everybody in that or in that group? Wholeheartedly agree. Mm-hmm. And seconded. <laughs> yeah, it, it's I mean, you know. To be honest with you, I, I used to have a very um, full career in, in assessment. Many early in my career, most IO psychologists will create assessments at some point. That's it's one of our <laughs> rites of passage, right? We have to do it. And I was so I was an I and I was an ardent proponent of selection assessment at that point in my career. I hardly ever do anything with assessment selection at this point. And uh, well, I haven't for like twenty years, not not just now. And the reason is I really came to understand that assessment will some would sometimes have the same problems that we, we are trying to tackle with AI that, that we have within AI when we try to apply them to talent management practices, which is that often the the data, the 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 the, um, the universe of the data that was being used to make normative decisions was was small, was restricted, did not represent the full characteristics of the applicant pool or the candidate pool or what have you. There was that. So you had this range restriction in the, in creating these norms. Um, that really, I, I, th- I thought about that over and over and I wasn't quite sure. Um, you know, it, it, I never could get away from that from that problem. The other thing is that, you know, the tests themselves, you know, we as IO psychologists know that cognitive ability tests are very effective at differentiating amongst applicants for a job, let's say. So that's true, but but cognitive ability tests are also, also have these characteristics in the way that they're created, where they, they are normed and, and the words that are used and the, and, the, and the context of the questions, especially when you have questions that are not only math, but you know other kinds of problem solving. There's, they're, they're, all of that is so, um, tends to be so slanted to a certain portion of the of the population that is it any wonder then that people who don't have the characteristics of those who are normed on that test don't perform as, as well on that test. So then you have this challenge, for example, with the NFL, where, where the NFL, for example, might decide, well, let's use race-based norms where we have a different cut score for a different group of people because the scores are different. But But all of that to me, really, just points to us needing to continue to um, do better, meaning meaning our profession, because the question is, and I I could not really can't still I'm still struggling with this is what impact are these environmental differences having right on 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 the way that people are answering these questions? Is it that this group of people is less clever, and that's why their scores are lower? Or is it that they have had completely different educational backgrounds? They haven't been exposed to some of the social and environmental experiences that others have. I mean, during the, during the pandemic, if you look at um, at you know everything on social media and you see people who are talking about they're traveling here or they're buying these new clothes or they're buying this new house or they're getting this new car. Be, or even that they have access, they have the home tests to, to figure out if they have COVID. What you, what is really clear is that some people have things and some people don't. It, and so I, it's very, as time has gone on, it's hard to differentiate or it's, it's hard to separate out the impact of that so, of those social disparities in access to whatever the experience is from the disparities that we see play out 
within organizations when decisions are made about a wide cross-section of people, including those who haven't had access to some of those experiences. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit off from the question that you asked, but the, but it, but the reason I'm mentioning it is frankly, I anticipate that what we're dealing with now is a complete disruption of HR, talent management and leadership and development methodologies that have been sacrosanct. Um, and I wrote an article a couple of months ago um, with Katie Peters where, you know, you know if you Google um, thought leader, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, generally you will get photographs of people that whose names are very familiar to you. They'll tend to be white males and nothing against white males at all. But, but it is evident that it can't possibly be that only those same 10, 20 people are thought leaders for this whole country and world over and over and over. And, and you know, where's the, who are the other people? How come, you know, but, but because I'm publishing a book, when you go into the system of, well, how does one get a book published so that one could become a thought leader? You realize it's an expensive proposition, both in terms of time and, and, and money. Um, and 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 um, everything. So so all of these things are interrelated. Yeah, for sure. No, and <laughs> having published a book, I can tell you, like <laughs> what you just said is like there's so many hidden things that people assume. You know, oh, getting on this bestseller list is easy, and it's like, well, it's not according to numbers. It's who you know in that game, right? Like, yeah. you know, but it reads as if you know it was a right. bestseller when it actually like. There's so much behind it, and so many, yeah. you know, um, who you knows and how much do you have? Do you have to like yeah. navigate? And yeah. if you are, you know coming from a place where you didn't have mommy and daddy's money to get you to a place where you could have sit at certain table, right? Like all of that then plays mm -hmm. a role in your ability to publish. And it's, it's just this, this locked box that people oftentimes don't see or understand. With um, maybe the worst segue in history, Gina, to bring us to close, please tell <laughs> us, tell us a little bit about the book. I think you said it's coming out in October this year, but also mm -hmm. go ahead and, and, and plug, you know, yourself a little bit, what you'd like to share with our audience before we mm -hmm. close out here. Well, thank you for that. So, um, you know, I really invite people who want to learn a little bit about me to go to LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn has a lot of information about me. Uh, the, my business is feelshuman.com, but I'm publishing a book on October 4th of this year. Very excited to get this book to come out. The book is entitled Leading Inclusion. It is for business leaders. And it's really from, I have to say, though the lessons in this book apply to all the various dimensions of difference, it definitely is written from the perspective of a Black woman in corporate America who also happens to be a PhD in IO psychology, an executive coach, a mother, um, and has a particular, uh, and, and I have that perspective in there. But because I interviewed about 35 um, thought leaders as well uh, for this book, one of the things that uh, I try, I'm trying to communicate with this book is that there is a place for leader, a role that leaders must play in their, if, if they desire to have organizations that are not just diverse, but inclusive. And unless they play that role, especially at the top of the organization, all of their efforts are going to be for naught because it requires that much effort to move this big ship that has existed in its current form for so long. So look for my book, Leading Inclusion. 
You can go uh, to Amazon and all of the other big booksellers to find the book, although literally the book cover has just been designed. You won't even see the book cover yet, but it is available for pre-order. And I'm going to have a, a few more details that I'll share uh, with you so that you can put it into the show notes. Um, Sure. Uh, Jeff and Chris, and be happy to uh, talk a little bit more with any of your uh, audience uh, who wants to know more about the book. Awesome. Oh, absolutely. Wow. After our conversation today, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it, um, seeing, looking, looking into your mind a bit more. I love the way you've yeah. really taken what we've talked about and really painted it in very clear and impactful ways. So I appreciate uh, what you brought to the table today, Gina. Yeah. Oh, such a pleasure yeah. to be here. Yes. I can't wait to read the book as well. And it's also a little bit of a gift because October 4th is my mom's birthday. Really? So I, yeah. So <laughs> I the, fourth day, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fourth days of the month are typically the best days. You know, yeah. my birthday Gosh, is April the 4th. Beyonce's oh. birthday is September the 4th. My mom's birthday it. is October the 4th. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chris, um, I did want to ask you. So yeah, I did write the book for your mom. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> Chris, I wanted to ask about your last name because it's, I've not seen that last name before. It's a beautiful last name. So tell me about your last name. Sure. Uh, so it's Canadian French. Um, my family's from Louisiana. Um, being Black, it's, we know the history, right? But um, our, our owners were from Canada, Canada and were Canadian French. Yeah. And so they settled, they migrated from... Um, what is it, Acadia? Arcadia. <laughs> um, and they came down to um, Louisiana. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where my dad's family is from. And then my mom's side of the family is from North Carolina. And there's a whole lot of mixture with Native Americans and um, African Americans. So my parents met in Houston. And that's the rest history. is history. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So um, it's, and it's very interesting because there, there's different spellings of it. Um, around Louisiana. So, and some people just call them Pete instead of Petrie. Mm. So you don't say the mm -hmm. RE. Um, right. And then some people who are Peter, Peterson. Um, so it's different combinations, but um, from that original area. So. Well, I gotta say one more thing before I let you guys yes. escape. So Jeff Ma, um, I, every time, I'm sure this happens to you all the time, but I would see your name and my brain would do the thing where I wanted to call you Jack every single time. And oh, I'm gosh. sure. <laughs> I know. So I hope I never once, I hope I never once, you know, called you by someone else's name. Never mind that that person is upstairs rich. <laughs> well, well, Ma, Ma is one of the like top, I don't remember what it's at now, but top 10 most common last names in the world globally right. because because the Chinese population is such a, yeah. such a large part of it and it's a common name there. But um, fun fact, Jeffrey Ma or Jeff Ma was also on the MIT. It was one of the one of the people on the MIT team that broke Vegas in the movie, like the movie 21. Is that you know? right? Yeah. So if you Google Jeff Ma, you're not getting me. That's for sure. Oh my uh, gosh, <laughs> names are so much fun. That is, yeah. now I'm going to have to go look that up. You know? yeah. yeah. All right. Well, with that, uh, great. I had a great time, Gina. Thank you once again for coming. Chris, thanks for joining us oh, to the audience. A pleasure and happy new yes. year. I hope this is a yes. year of ease for both of you. Thank Absolutely. you. I will receive that for sure. <laughs> To our audience, we hope it's a year of ease as well and appreciate you joining us and staying with us. Be sure to check out our book, Love as a Business Strategy, if you haven't. And please do look up Gina on LinkedIn and look out for her book as well. So with that, we'll see you guys next week.